Welcome back to the Flat Out RC podcast, a podcast where we talk all things aero modeling. We're talking radio control planes, drones, and helis. My name's Andrew Sill, coming to you all the way down here, down under in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And if you are listening abroad, which I do know there are some listeners from overseas, thanks for joining us down here as we talk about aero modeling. And a lot of it is focused on Australians, and we have international guests uh, from time to time as well. So really, thanks to all of you for listening. Now, another big episode coming up. I say that every week, but this one is a big one. Uh, i got a really special guy joining me. His name is Paul Bennett. Paul Bennett from Paul Bennett Air Shows. Now, some of you may know Paul as uh, an aerobatic air show pilot, and we're talking full-size planes here. But you may not know that he's an avid aero modeler as well and has been for a very long period of time. So uh, stay tuned because we'll be having a good chat with Paul uh, uh, about all things aviation. So something to really uh, hang around and listen to. So let's get into it. Let's see what's been happening around the traps. Finally. It looks like down here in Melbourne, Australia, our restrictions have been eased. We have been locked down. I can't remember how many days we've been locked down, but I, I think it was something like over 100 days that we were locked down. And uh, basically flying clubs weren't able to operate due to the restrictions, but we are back. Initially, the, the regulation allowed uh, uh, up to 10 people from two households. For the, so for the majority of clubs, it meant two people at the field at one time. But now that's been eased to... 10 people from 10 households, so you can have a maximum of 10 people. And most clubs are doing a pretty good job down here in managing that, whether it be through online systems or just uh, turning up and hoping for the best that there's only 10 of you there. But uh, I really do like what my local club has done, Packenham, where they've got an online form and you can see who's turning up. They'll split the day into two to, to give you know, more people an opportunity, so 10 in the morning, 10 in the afternoon. But... Uh, We've still got a 25-kilometer radius from home restriction, which will be eased uh, in the coming days, really. Uh, by the time this podcast goes live, it'll be you know, three or four days to go until that restriction comes off. And uh, that's when I can get back to my local flying field because my local flying field is 25 kilometers out. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got five, I think I've got five airplanes that I've got sitting there that I've uh, been working on during lockdown that are ready to fly. So looking forward to getting out there. So that's probably the biggest news in my local scene where I live. Uh, but there's something else that caught my attention that I've been seeing sort of spruiked around. And it's from an Australian company called Boomer RC. Uh, they're not sponsoring this show, but I, I like supporting Australian companies that are building Australian products. So uh, Boomer RC got this thing called a turbine and gas model Q switch and what it basically is you know how if you've got a, a, a generally a larger size plane or you know a conventional plane or a jet you might have a couple of batteries for redundancy on your receivers uh, you'll have a ignition battery then you might have another battery for a smoke system or some lights or something like that and you've got a choice. Do you put you know, a switch to, to isolate them all individually, which means you'll have you know, maybe three switches, you know, one for your uh, receiver packs and then maybe one for ignition and one for uh, the lights, or is there a simpler way? And 
that's what Boomer RC have created in this Q switch. It's a, it's a single switch system that enables you to uh, connect multiple batteries to it. So it just takes out the clutter. And I don't know about you, but I, I can't keep a plane there. I'm terrible at managing cables inside an airplane. So if there's any device out there that can really cut down the number of bits and bobs in the plane, the switches and all that kind of stuff, then I'm all for it. So this is what Boomer say. Three years ago, we were setting up a large model with dual batteries for receiver, battery for lights, battery for ECU, and a battery for retrack. So obviously that was for a jet. We looked at all the cables and switches we needed to run, everything on and off, and thought someone needs to design a switch that controls all batteries on and off function with a single switch. So that's what they did. They ended up building something. Um, but in true form, Boomer RC just don't you know, do some simple wiring. They, 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 they make sure that... Uh, things work well so the q switch comes with our proven battery sharing technology and battery redundancy technology built right in so it's really good for uh your receiver packs you know we put two receivers in and uh if one fails it goes to the other um and i look if anybody's building a model and i always say about 30 cc and up great to have redundant batteries um system you know like my 30 cc i run run two 1300 milliamp hour uh 2s lipo packs um, they're tiny. They weigh hardly anything. But the way, if you don't know anything about redundant systems, the two batteries uh, you add the, the the milliamps up, so it adds up to a two point or two thousand six hundred milliamp hour battery system I've got. Because what happens is the the, the battery draws uh, alternates between each battery, so they they drop at the same kind of rate. Uh, and sharing the, sharing the powering duties, but that's what you'll get in this Q switch. will help you manage that. And you can actually run a single receiver or dual receiver setup as well. So for anybody that wants to run dual receivers, I know some people do, especially with, say, Futaba systems. I know that with the Spectrum systems, a lot of us don't need to because we can have multiple satellites connected to the receiver or the, the hub, uh, the satellites sort of are the receiver in a way. So we already have, like in some of my planes, I've got, you can consider them have four receivers. So there are people out there that that will have those dual uh, dual receivers and, and this Q switch will allow you to do it. So you can use a pin flag switch or a remote switch or magnetic switch. I really like the mag. Well, magnetic switches are good and pin flag switches are good, but the only downside is you have to carry another thing to activate the switch, and that sometimes just means another thing for me to forget at home and not take with me. But I, I do try to keep all my switches, my magnetic switches, and all that kind of stuff in my transmitter case so if i've got my transmitter i should have it uh, it's a bit yeah, my memory sometimes not that great um we've included our ultra bright daylight blue led to show you if the model is powered or unpowered that's always good uh you put on the side of the plane uh, minimal footprint pretty small um but it looks pretty good it will take obviously multiple kinds of um batteries multiple chemistries so you whether you're using lipos or lifes or nickel metal hydrides, don't worry, it can handle it. Um, it's almost like the circuits seem to be separate, especially the ones for ignition uh, and, and any auxiliary you know, lights or things like that um, uh, are separate. So now, Boomer RC, uh, what's their website? BoomerRC.com. Now, a little tip for anyone that's in Australia, the default pricing is in USD. Um, so you're going to have to change the currency to Aussie dollars, which you, you'll be able to see on the website just to get your Australian dollars, but uh, anywhere else uh, that works in US dollars, go for your life. Um, but yeah, take a look, boomerrc, dot 
com that sparked my attention this week. So there you have it. Well, enough of just listening to me. It's time for our special guest. And today's special guest is Paul Bennett. And uh, as I said earlier, you may know him from Paul Bennett Air Shows. He's that guy flying that crazy aerobatics in a pit. He generally has a few other mates with him that uh, they fly in formation. Paul is an amazing character. He's really a go-getter when you look at his life and what he's achieved already. I think he's about the same age as me, 47 years of age. He... He runs six different businesses. A lot, uh, a lot of them involved in aviation in some regard. But you know, he he's got a fiberglass uh, supply business. You know, fiberglass and associated equipment for fiberglassing. So a lot of his customers are in that uh, fiberglass pool business. He's got a freight company that not only freights around his you know fiberglass products to his customers, but uh, but other things as well. And uh, he's got a joy flight business. He's got the Paul Bennett Air Shows and a couple of others. Now Paul Bennett Air Shows is a business where he actually will organize air shows for, for people and or uh, just be a part of it as far as flying aerobatic displays. We see him regularly at the Avalon International Air Show. I've seen him at the Tyab Air Show, Tyab uh, Stoll competition that he organized and ran. And this guy is amazing. He He's, he's just a very, very busy guy. Uh, we had a few false starts in trying to get the, the chat underway due to just him being so busy. But... Uh, I was willing to hang in there because I knew that having a chat with him was going to be an awesome experience. What a lot of us don't know is that Paul has been a long-time aero modeler and a very avid aero modeler. And, and surprisingly enough, he's still out there every month flying planes and in particular jets uh, at the moment. But he's flown all sorts of different things uh, throughout his time. And apparently his son's getting into it as well. So the tradition will continue. So please enjoy this chat that I had with the one and only Paul Bennett. Well, it's my great pleasure to have uh, the one and only Paul Bennett from Paul Bennett Air Shows joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. Paul, thanks for joining me. No worries. Pleasure to be with you. Now, you're a very busy man, and we're going to get into all the nitty-gritty details of what makes you so busy, but uh, you could say that your life is surrounded by aviation, but what did your childhood look like when you were growing up in uh, Taree, New South Wales? Yeah, well... I was born in Sydney, but then we moved up to Old Barn, just near Taree, when I was one. And so then, um, childhood was sort of, you know, my old man was a pilot, and um, so I sort of spent a fair bit of time around full-size aeroplanes. So I went for a ride with him in a car seat, and then um, he was he was in a model aeroplane. So you know, I always found myself at the at the local model aero club. Um, when I was young and then sort of as soon as I was old enough, I can't remember what age, but probably five or six, I was flying control line and, and uh, you know, with the TD-051 and, and uh, some, some little machines that he'd built for me and it just sort of went on from there, I suppose. It was, it was when I look back on it, it was pretty cool. I guess I got, got the opportunity to get into aviation very young and, I was an only child, so I guess spent a fair bit of time with my dad, and that was pretty cool. Yeah, so you, so you got into the radio control through your dad, which is a, which we hear a lot of. What were you know? When did you get into sort of the radio control side of things? Oh, I think when I was when I was about 
when I was about nine, probably eight or nine, I was flying radio control. Um, you know, Dad built me a hustler. I think it, I think it was always thirty or thirty-five or something. It was a bit small, but you know that was pretty good to start with. And you just sort of go from there. And then you know he was always sort of into pattern flying, aerobatic type stuff. So then I did that as well. And you just sort of move along. And then once you get, you know, once you get a little bit older, I suppose it's a bit hard to build decent aeroplanes when you're young. So you know he was a house builder and he was good at building model aeroplanes. So he he built them for me to start with, and then once I got a bit older, then I got interested in the building side of it. And I guess there's a sense of achievement when you sort of when you build something from scratch and then you you put it together and fly. It's always cool. I mean, it's sort of changed a bit now with all the ARF stuff, but you know, back in the day, you had to start with some sticks of balsa and go from there. But um, I, I'm sure that if you learnt that way, it's it sort of sticks with you and and helps helps you. You know, when you you know, when you're in sort of today's world where the most of the machines you buy are ARF. Yeah, it's true. And you you said your dad was into aerobatics, so that sort of was handed down to you as well. Did you gravitate towards aerobatics, or did you did you try did you fly other scale planes, you know, warbirds and things like that as well, or was it just aerobatics for you? Well, yeah, he was he wasn't into aerobatics full, so it's just into aerobatics models. I mean, he was on he was on the first Trans Tasman tour with. You know, flying pattern. So I guess he was he was into that, that type of flying. Um, he wasn't into that much scale, but I did. I like scale and I like warbird. Sort of as soon as I, you know, when you see some, when you, you know, I, like when you sort of appreciate things, you 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 look at some of the machines that have been built by some pretty cool builders, and you you sort of sit back and take notice, don't you? When you see something that's really well built, and so yeah, I did like scale. But I probably I probably enjoyed flying more than building. So uh, for me, it was hard to spend, you know, that much time sort of building something perfectly scale. I suppose I just I guess I just enjoyed the flying side of it a bit more than that. And you know, like as I was growing up, I got right into sailing as well. So that took a lot took up a lot of time, and I was building my own boats. And you know, I suppose it's all about priorities and what fits in where. But I never wanted to. I never obviously got away from flying models. It was always, it's something that I've always done. Yeah. Do you still get out to have a fly nowadays or too busy? No, we fly quite regularly, actually. We fly, I'm sort of probably mostly into jets, but also a bit of sort of large aerobatic stuff. But um, Skyaces RC flies regularly at uh, Tari and Kempsey, and I fly at the Maitland model aero field as well. And my son flies pretty well now, so just like me, you know, he spent a fair bit of time in the early days. He spent a fair bit of time at the model field in, in the pram. He was there from when he was, you know, first born, really, because my wife worked for Qantas. So um, she was away quite a lot. So I always used to take him with me to the model field and to the full-size airfield. And so he's just grown up around planes. He, he went for a loop and a roll on his first birthday in a car seat in the real aeroplane. And he's always been at the model field and he's always taking an interest and he sort of he was always one of those kids that wasn't sort of like a um a destroyer you know he, he he's pretty sort of gentle placid sort of kid and so you could you could have him around the models without without worrying about him too much doing any damage he was really good and he showed an interest so as soon as he as soon as he was sort of old enough to get the gist of it had him flying and so he was flying a trainer and now he flies a jet and an extra 300 and what else he you know he flies flies my airplanes as well, I'll let him have a go. Yeah, that sounds cool. It's good that uh, you can pass it down through the family. Now, I'm interested to know, at, at 
at some point in time, you moved to the full-size flying. Now, well, it's the age of 16 or something you can start flying, can't you, full-size? Yeah, I didn't have enough money when I was 16, unfortunately. I wish I did. But um, So for me, it was – I sort of always knew that I was going to want to do it. Um, but I had to make a few bucks first. I sort of purposely kept myself away from full-size airfields a little bit because I, I was – Absolutely sure that if I'd started, I wouldn't be able to stop. So um, the timing was just right one day. There was a friend of mine who had recently gone solo in a two-seat fit special. And so, and he also flew models. So he took me for a ride. He said, come on, we'll go for it. It was on a Sunday afternoon. He said, oh, I'm going for a fly in the pits. You want to come for a ride? I said, yeah, why not? So I went for a ride with him. And um, that was on Sunday. And then on Monday, I was at Royal Newcastle Aero Club trying to get my license. So. It pretty much hasn't stopped since then. Yeah, I find uh, my brother's a pilot, and the passion that he had for flying—he's still a pilot now, he flies for Virgin. But he, uh, well, he, at the moment, he's not flying for Virgin. He's sitting at home waiting to fly for Virgin. He he started when he was eighteen, and and he had that really intense passion for flying. That every waking moment, and spare moment that he had, he'd be at the flying club doing lessons and whatever. Were you that kind of person as well? Once he got into it, yeah. Pretty much once I got into it, yeah, I was right into it and I really wanted to do well at it. And like once I got into it, I suppose I knew that I, because that first flight was an aerobatic flight and because of my um, modeling background, you know, like the love of aerobatic type flying, I just sort of knew that that was where I was going to go. So cause I went and did my GFBT and then, um, which is like a restricted license. So you can fly in the local area, but you can't fly from A to B, like, you know, to, can't fly to more than 25 miles so I, I then went and did my aerobatic training with um, Bill Unicum and and so then I worked up to being able to compete at a, at, um, at my first aerobatic competition so I couldn't fly the aeroplane to the competition but I could fly it once it got there so so you made that, um, that you made that shift really early into aerobatics then I did yeah and, and so yeah it was it was sort of good because we were I had another friend who I was sort of working with at the time that he was at a similar stage to me. And so we were, you know, we we both progressed through the aerobatics side by side. We both went solo in the S2A within a week of each other and we were good mates. And it was good for the whole competition side. You know, we sort of push each other along in those early days. And, and um, yeah, and now, and now he works for me. <laughs> <laughs> what plane were you flying, aerobatic plane, early on? Uh, Pitch S2A early on. So Straight away, solar in the two seater, yeah, and then and then competed in the S two A, and then um, did that for a couple of years, and then started competing in a Pits S one, and then I bought that Pits S one, and then you know, it just goes on from there. Gee, because I've heard my good mate Edo Segev, rest in peace, Edo. He loved the Pits, and he loved seeing you fly, and. But he used to say to me that every time he flew that plane, he, he got scared at some point in time. Now, and we we know that the pits, especially landing a pits, probably isn't the easiest thing to do. But to hear that you went sort of pretty much into the pits very early on is amazing. Did you ever get scared in those early days flying the the, the pits? Uh, not really. I mean, if you if you go about it, I went about it pretty methodically and sort of did it with a pretty experienced guy. And I mean, so did Edo. Um, Edo's a great bloke and we I spent a bit of time with Edo and I was actually just about to do his low level approval 
um, when the when the mishap happened, and you know we've we've done some full size air shows overseas when Udo's been there flying oh, the models, and, yeah. and um, yeah, we did a mission man formation for him at the Thai Air Show earlier this year. So yeah, good bloke. Um, but yeah, look, I, I moved. Some people sort of think that maybe you should start in a decathlon or you know something a bit bit slower and easier, but I guess. And debatably, maybe that is a better way. And it probably depends a little bit on the person and and sort of how much flying they're going to do. If you're going to fly every week and, and you're going to sort of dedicate a lot of time to it, I think the, the pits is fine. It's it is hard to land and it and it it will get your attention if you if you take off and it's all nice and calm and you come back and it's a twenty knot crosswind. It's not not an ideal situation, that's for sure. Um, but you know, in the early days, and I, and I suppose you just got to, whereas you might get away with, with a decathlon in, in a bit of crosswind and whatever, you won't in a pit, so you just got to pick the days when it's right, and, and when it's not the right day, you just don't fly in the early days. Yeah. The, uh, there, there are a number of people that do compete in full-size aerobatics in Australia, but not many of them move on to that air show kind of scene. Tell me a bit about how that all came about and that progression from sort of the competition aerobatics into the air shows. Well, you, you certainly don't don't have to go that way, and it and it depends on the per the person, and and you sort of got to have a bit of a mindset. You, you certainly got to be sort of dedicated and and be a pretty methodical thinker to fly aerobatic competition well, but then to fly air shows. You know, to do all that at a lower level again, like lower to the ground, is is um, it's not it's certainly not for everyone, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it's the way you sort of think about it in a lot of ways. But you know, for me, it was progressed through the competition. So, you know, it's graduate, sportsman, intermediate, advanced, unlimited, and so, you know, once I sort of you know, I won my first competition and, and then um, you sort of, you know, it's pretty expensive to do competitions, so I didn't do every every single one of them all the way through, but, you know, I competed in every level and I, I probably, one, if I look back on it, one mistake I made was I went from intermediate to advanced, probably a year too fast. Um, I didn't actually win intermediate on the way through. I made a mistake and I probably should have reflown that whole done another year in that grade to be honest is what I should have done but I went to advanced and then uh, then I won advanced and and then I won unlimited and we had a good setup because Glenn Graham who works for me he he's a or an advanced and unlimited pilot as well so we critiqued each other all the way through it's really important to have good ground critique and so I guess then once I once I'd sort of got to advanced you can sort of start to see that the airshow road sort of unfolding a little bit. You know, I was good mates with quite a few airshow pilots, Tom Moon and Pip Borman and so on. And and then I'd been invited just to fly some airshows with my model jets. So then you sort of become, you get into that environment a little bit. And so then um, I'd been asked, this particular time I'd been asked to, to fly the model jet. And then they, and, and I was also the Australian I think I was the Australian Advanced Champion at the time, so and I just I thought oh, well, I'll do do their show as well, so like in full size, so I did, and it sort of just started from there, and then um, 
one thing leads to another and like at, at that stage you sort of don't know how how much air show flying you're going to do but you know there's i guess there's a few bucks in it so it's always good to get to now get paid to fly instead of you know it costs you a lot of money to do aerobatic competition stuff and so then on it goes and then and then you know well, even when i started i didn't think that we'd have a full-on air show business that was worldwide but yeah i guess just things just unfold and you progress and it just sort of worked out that way yeah it's amazing how many opportunities open up when you get involved in something that you may not expect but it sounds like you're quite a methodical guy which you'd need to be especially being an air show pilot with not only putting on a performance but all the safety that's revolved around it as well what is your typical process when it comes to preparing for an air show uh practice so there's a i mean there's a lot of work you know, on the paperwork side and the risk assessment side for, for um, like what you got to submit to CASA in an application side of things. So we do all that for most of the air shows, to be honest. Um, and then, you know, we liaise with the pilots and sort of make sure that we've got the right pilots and the right machines, I guess. But um, as far as our own flying part, you know, we practice pretty hard when, when we're, you know, we haven't been practicing a whole lot now because of this whole COVID thing hasn't been obviously any air shows on but so we just sort of fly just enough to stay current but when the air shows are on like every weekend we fly every day um glenn and i are always practicing critiquing each other we fly formation regularly so um jesse the other guy jesse and glenn collins the other guys that fly with us you know we'll like when we if we haven't flown for a while we'll go out as a two ship so myself and glenn graham will fly during the week because he works for me so that that works and then and, you know, Glenn Collins is every second Friday off, so we'll spend a Friday flying. So then we might fly the three-ship with myself, um, Glenn Graham and Glenn Collins. And then when it works for Jesse, he'll come up and we'll, he might come up for three days. So we'll fly fly with him on the other wing. And normally when normally when someone hasn't flown for a little while, we'll go, we'll go out as a two-ship. So Jesse flies on the right wing. So I'll go out and leave for him and we'll get back up to speed with him. I'll go out with Glenn Collins on the, uh, in number four. I'll go out with Glenn Graham in number three, and then we put them together one by one to, you know, just to build up to it. You don't want to, you can't have any mistakes when you're flying with four aeroplanes. They're all too close to have anything going wrong. So you, you've got to do it the right way. A lot of it's in the briefing. So when we haven't flown for a little while, I resend out the briefings. We talk about, we sort of take notes after each flight. We um, and we document it in a file so that we can look back on that when we, if we haven't flown for a little while, we'll we'll rebrief. We talk on the phone in the in the days just before we we're going to go and fly because we want to make sure that everyone's thinking the right way and and thinking of the things that we've tried to improve on. You know, we don't want to go back to where we were. We want to always keep progressing forward, and and that seems to be the way to do it. So, like we do our whole sequences on a PowerPoint presentation that we all we all watch so when we haven't flown for a while we all go through it individually and make sure that you know we know the sequence and and we're on top of it but like when we when we haven't flown for a while we don't we just don't go and fly the sequence you know it's you build up one with two airplanes and three airplanes and four airplanes but also we don't start with the sequence we start with the figures so we just go and practice some loops some wing overs and some barrel rolls just get back in the formation aerobatic groove and then 
then we build up to the sequence because you know it's it's like everything you do is just lifting another level and another level and another level and you you just if you've had any time off you won't be at the top level so you just can't do it so yeah there's a there's a lot of work that goes into a, especially a formation aerobatic team and it's probably the most rewarding flying I've done I mean uh, it was you know flying anything is is very good you know cool fun and and rewarding. I mean, I was in the Kitty Hawk yesterday, which I've missed. It's been, it was great to get back in it. But, um, you know, the formation aerobatic stuff is probably the most demanding, that's for sure. Yeah, there's a lot, lot, lot more at stake when you're all up in the air. But are you flying, are you generally flying the same sequence at every air show, or are you changing sequences depending on the airspace that you've got and the orientation of the fields, etc.? No, we, I fly the, when I fly solo, it's the same solo for, like, for an air show season. And, and in the background, when, so when we practice, I'll go and practice the sequence from start to finish, and then, um, you know, you, that might take 12 minutes, for example, and then you've got a bit more time. So at the end of the sequence, you climb up, and you, I'm always working on some new figures, um, like combinations for forward flips and so on. So things that you that you're not quite ready to put into an, a display yet, but you're working on them for a display down the track for when it's right. So I'm always practicing those things. But yeah, basically, within reason. It's the same same display um, at all the shows, but it sort of presents different depending on whether you're running from one way or the other. Um, and normally, I mean, there there is the odd occasion when you've got to modify something to do with um, where the airport's situated in relation to a residential area and so on. But you know, we've sort of already planned that out. It's not like a surprise when you get to the air display because we've we've already worked it all out and, and we've made the display instructions for all the pilots and sent them out so we've sort of it's not like a big it's not like a surprise when you turn up there it's um you've already done a lot of planning before you get to the venue you know if you know you're going to pick one Illawarra or Avalon this weekend you've, you've thought about you've got to think about what you what you need to see at certain times when you're flying in a certain direction um because you you know you just can't it's not a not a real forgiving game, and you can't have a situation where you, where you break the crowd line. You, you know, you fly too close, or any of that type of thing. You obviously can't fly too low because you know what comes next. Um, and so, yeah, it's just it's just practice and thinking about it, and it's really it's really good having a like because we've got a team. We're all sort of looking at each other and critiquing each other, helping each other, and giving it giving constructive criticism to try and make things better all the time and I think that's by far the, the best way it can be. Yeah. Have you found it difficult to have to find that team that you can really really count on so you'd have to have a hundred percent faith in in your fellow team members that are up in the sky with you is that something that that just came through relationships from the aerobatic scene or did you really have to work hard to try to find the right group of people to fly with? Um. I was I was lucky in the first place because I, I started for Narrows with Phil Unicum, so you know I, I was doing solos around the place, but then I got some got some formation aerobatic work and and so I did a bit with him in the early days, and then Glenn Collins was the he was the the first sort of full on guy to come on when we were doing them all the time as a two ship, and then then Glenn Graham started working for me, so I because I'm because I um, I'm a Casa delegate, so I actually do formation aerobatic, formation formation aerobatics, tailwheel, constant speed retractable. I do a lot of training, so um, 
I signed him out for his formation arrows and then it sort of it just worked then so then I had myself Glenn Collins and Glenn Graham which was really good and that's when the three ship was sort of full on and then um, Glenn Collins needed to step away from it for a little while so uh, then we had we got Ben Lappin um, and then and then um, Ben changed Jane's role so he you know he went flying for the flying doctors so then that sort of didn't work so much for the overseas stuff so then we got Jesse but so everyone I've sort of got the got rules that if you're going to fly with us in the formation team, you've got to have at least one advanced or been capable of it. And so Jesse hasn't didn't win, but he was extremely close to winning unlimited. So you know he's, he only missed out by the tiniest of margin. So he's well and truly capable. Um, Glenn Collins is one advanced. Glenn Graham's one advanced. So it's a it, it's always going to be a high standard of pilot that you put there. Um, and and it, the biggest thing is not necessarily their hands and feet ability. It's the it's how they think, and you can't you can't have spur of the moment decisions, and um, you know sometimes it shows how how people have been trained, whether whether it's been a, a a really sort of thorough training or whether it was just a signature, and so. Um, we we spent a lot of time just getting all that sort of uh, this, the, the perfection stuff right. You, you just can't you can't make a wrong decision when you're doing that type of thing. You know, it's just you know how it's going to end. Yeah. How 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 physically fit do you need to be to to, to undertake these air shows and consistently be practicing aerobatics? Well, it takes a bit. To, I mean, match fitness match fitness is the is the best thing. Like, just keep flying all the time, but. You know, for when you're going to, like say in my case, I might fly a number of different displays. I might fly a, like a pit solo teaser and circle the flag and then I might fly, um, you know, a Kitty Hawk Mustang Avenger or Trojan or something and then a Wolf Pit solo and then a Sky Aces formation. So it's it, it ends up being a pretty, pretty demanding and sort of grueling day and you've got to make sure you're in the right frame of mind and you've got to, you've got to, yeah, it's no good being worn out by the time you get to one of them because it's just not going to work. So, you know, I ride my bike every morning and do weights, and um, it's just hard to fit it all in with the with the work life. You know, that's the only that's the other problem because there's obviously business seems to get in the way of some of this stuff as well. Yeah. Now, just speaking on your businesses, you've got multiple businesses. I think I counted. Is it four businesses you've currently got? Oh, there's six, but there's but you know they they're all sort of demeaning in their own different way. So there's all been air shows, obviously the air show business. So that that probably taken a bit of a um, a side step this year, obviously with the COVID thing. But we're we're fully ramping back up now because there's a lot lot going to happen for 2021. That's for sure. So so that'll get going shortly. Well, we're you know the, all the full times are still been full time, and we've still been doing plenty of stuff, but just not quite what we'd normally do. Um, Trojan fiberglass has, has been a sort of a big business for a long time and it just keeps growing and growing. So that's situated in Cardiff in Newcastle, New South Wales. So, um, you know, we've got a really, we, we supply a lot of the large swimming pool manufacturers with resin and gel coat and um, a lot of the, the boat industry as well. So, um, and we do, you know, we've got a really big, online presence for uh, a lot of modelers by you know epoxy and and um 
cough and so on from us. So, so that's a pretty good business. And then there's Trojan Freight. So that's that sort of grew out of I sort of fell into that in a way accidentally because we were getting a bit with the fiberglass business. We were getting let down a little bit with the freight. So I said, well, let's get our own truck and then we can deliver it ourselves. So we did. We started with a just a small tort liner and then. Then that wasn't big enough, so then we got a twin steer taut liner, and then that wasn't big enough, so then we got a semi taut liner, and then once we did that, I thought, well, we're bringing in all these containers from overseas. Why don't we get something that we can pick them up from Sydney with? So then we got a side loader, and then and then then we thought, well, what are we paying someone else to get them off the wharf for? Why don't we just start getting them off the wharf? So then we did. So then we, you know, drivers got the got approved for the. Um, so you can go on the wharf and get them straight from the dock, the containers, and then one thing led to another, and then we got more trailers, and so we got some scale trailers, and then and then everyone else seemed to be having trouble with freight as well. So then then we um, end up working for all these freight forwarders, and so then sooner or later one truck turns into ten trucks, and and then that turns into a dozen trailers, and one thing leads to another, and then you end up with B doubles, and so, keeps so that's what happens. So. But like, the amazing thing is, it's like you keep on adding other businesses on top of it. You got a joy flight business as well, haven't you? Yeah, so yeah, we got Aero Hunter, so I bought that off a guy as a going business, and and uh, and that's sort of been really good. So that's what Glenn predominantly runs. Um, so we're doing adventure flights, and we've got two yaks, and we can do adventure flights in the Avenger that we're away. And in the future, the Trojan as well. So um, mainly the Yaks is, is the ones we sort of focus on. And um, we're doing you know plenty of those. We've got, as part of Aero Hunter, we've got Aero, Aero Hunter flight training as well. So we've got an LSA um, flight school. So we operate a Sirius yeah, assessment. So that's been going really well also. So, you know, one of my passions, obviously, is getting um, young people into aviation. I like, you know, I like seeing a smile on, on young people's face and sort of trying to pass on uh, what got me into aviation. So we're, um, Marty's out there full-time instructing and, and doing TIFs, getting people into it. So um, that's that sort of turned out to be a pretty good deal as well. So mm. we're, in, Aviation at the moment has really come under fire as a result of the COVID situation. And I'm fearful of what that might lead to down at the grassroots level, down at the flying clubs and the flying schools. What are your thoughts? How do you think uh, aviation is going to fare over the coming years? Well, I hope it. I hope everything comes good. You know, it, it's sort of feeling like we're soon to come good with some air displays sort of coming online from the second of January. So, and you know, in the US, like there's air shows this weekend in the US, and they've got a you know, a much bigger problem than what we've got. Um, so I'm hoping at the grassroots that everything everything goes well and sort of we we try and get involved a fair bit with the grassroots flying and, and you know, helping, encouraging people to get into aviation because, you know, it's definitely a very cool thing to do, you know. Out of all the things that you can do, or racing cars or go-karts or flying golf or whatever, I think aviation, as much as I like all those, you know, all facets of motorsport and, sport in general but aviation is certainly a pretty fun one that you can do in 
you know, whether you do aerobatics or not, it's still pretty cool just flying around the local area, showing your friends what the beach looks like from the air and what your house looks like from the air and so on. Um, so I guess the, the main thing that, that will be affected is, you know, people's financial situation or people that potentially would have went out and learnt to fly that are now in a financial situation where, where it doesn't allow, you know, anything extra apart from just living in general. So hopefully the economy gets back on track and, and um, we can help those people to get into aviation because, you know, the, it sort of this year to me feels like a bit of a year that we've lost. I mean, although I've, I've spent a lot of time building up the freight business, it's sort of, you know, you end up being a year older and and you, you miss out on a bit. I suppose, you know, you, you just got to take the opportunities where they are. But yeah, it's, it's sort of been, I suppose, disappointing on the flying side. Yeah, it's a much it's a much more fun life than driving a B double at midnight. I can assure you. Yeah, that's definitely true. Uh, when well, I think one of the, the the biggest crowd pleaser moves that you do is when you bring your pits in really low, smoke on, bit of a sort of a side slip, you know, wing dipped kind of move, and I reckon you're fifteen feet, twenty feet, no more than twenty feet off the ground. I reckon. How does that feel when you do that move, that signature sort of pits, pits move, that low pass? Yeah, it's pretty, it's it's pretty cool, I suppose. Um, yeah, it helps if you've got the machine to do it. So, you know, the the wolf pits and the S one eleven X have got heaps of power and and a lot of side area on the fuselage, so you can sort of box the air between the the top and bottom wing, make it bounce off the fuselage back to the ground, and that's what. It's sort of like that's how you can do it at such a slow speed. But yeah, it's it's um it's pretty cool. Yeah, it probably looks more dangerous than what it really is. Um, it's not for everyone, obviously, but yeah, it it changes the whole aerodynamics though because now you're using the basically the rudder's the elevator and um and the elevator's now the rudder, so things change and um. And the wings aren't really the wings anymore, so um, it's an interesting concept. But yeah, it's um, it's always a challenge that that Skip Stewart and myself always have at various air shows around the world. Yeah, I watched a video recently of uh, you and a, a motocross guy where the uh, he jumped over you. Now that was just that's just amazing. Oh, but how did that opportunity come about? Yeah, we've done it several times now, and uh, and it's been a bit of a hit at, at some of the air shows. And so yeah, I started doing it with Joel Brown and Australian Ramp Design. Um, so we we practiced it like quite a few years ago. Now we practiced it at Luskentire Airfield and um, just got it sort of perfected. So it was so it was right. And I mean, yeah, flying knife edge isn't too big a deal, and and um, you know, I guess you you just got to. Again, like we've got a checklist that we make sure everything's right. Like you don't want the motorbike rider to take off with his fuel turned off or something like that because you know, he's, he's not going to make it over the ramp. So you know, all those little things, you just got to make sure everyone's everyone's sort of having a good day, doing the, doing things right. You just don't want to do it if you you got to know when when the day's not right for you too. You know, that's a that's a bit of a trick. You got to got to know when to tone it back a little bit. You can't just keep going. If it's not working out, and sometimes, sometimes you just don't have the right day, and sometimes, you know, sometimes air shows you just have trouble with a particular figure. Just it's weird how it happens. You practice and practice and practice, and you wake up one day and it just doesn't seem to work right. 
and you go and do it the next day and it works absolutely fine. But yeah, the motorbike thing was, was good fun, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, that it's interesting you talk about the, um, you know, you've got to be right to fly. And I've experienced it with my own brother where he'll ring me up and say, oh, I couldn't fly today. I just I was not in the right headspace. My body didn't feel right. And that responsibility that he's got flying, you know, hundreds of passengers around. And it's good to hear that pilots have that, that mentality uh, and that you've got that team around you. But question for you, like when I see modern aerobatic flying, and I, it's, I don't know whether which way around this is, whether uh, full-size planes are getting inspiration from model aeroplanes that are doing 3D aerobatics or vice versa, because it seems that tumbling manoeuvres and more aggressive manoeuvres are coming into full-size aerobatics. Do you draw any inspiration from the model, from modelling or, or vice versa? Yeah, I do. I do for sure. But it's sort of different. It's... um. And I've, tr- I've tried over the years to try and be able to do something with the model and then go and try and do it in full size. But I've had more success doing it in full size than then doing it in the model, to be honest, because you sort of, it's, um, I'm not exactly sure why. Maybe I'm better at full size than models, but, um, you know, learning, when I was trying to learn to forward flip, um, I couldn't do it properly with the models, like to keep it, to do it exactly how I wanted but I can do it I can do it pretty good with the real one um, yeah but yeah like anything it's just practice the more you the more you do the more you the better you get and the the critiques are a big thing you know like having Glenn on the ground on the radio while I'm trying stuff because you know there's a lot of thought goes into it believe it or not it's not just bang stick in the corner and see what happens it's you've got to try and use the gyroscopic precession to um, the talk and the gyroscopic procession to to, um, to do what you want, you know. So you need certain forces going in certain directions at certain times in a manoeuvre, and it's pretty hard to figure that out, to be honest. But um, and and like a lot of it's trial and error. But if you certain, if you put the aeroplane on a certain angle at a certain speed and then you do it, you be, you'd be amazed how a couple of knots makes a massive difference here and there. Yeah. You know, like when you're trying to do a forward flip, for example. Ido, um, when he got into the, the pit, he would he rang me up one day and he said, "I need you to come and watch me from the ground." He says it's really hard compared to modelling. He said, "Because when you're flying an, an aerobatic model, you're watching the plane and you can see the airspace and where it's positioned." But he says, "When you're flying these pits and you're in it, you can't, you don't get that sense of positioning in the airspace." And he, and he wanted me to come along and watch him to to critique where he was. Because he was really trying to get, you know, I knew that he would end up competing. He was working towards that kind of level um, that he wanted to get involved because he wanted to, he just wanted to improve his aerobatic flight. But um, I definitely think that having someone on the ground that can watch you would, would really help and uh, give that other's perspective. Do you have a video, do you have people video your flights as well so that you can critique them later? Yeah, I do. Yeah. And especially, like, especially one-off figures so that, you know, you've got the guy on the ground that's, that's looking at it, but he's not feeling what you're what you're feeling. So you need both aspects of it. So yeah, we do a lot of that actually to, to you know because you just to get the angles right. You think oh right, and yeah, it just Jerry's. As soon as you see, it, you go oh now I know what it needs. It needs a little bit of rudder earlier, you know. Yeah. And then you, as soon as you go up and do it, it all happens straight away. So yeah, we do a lot of that type of thing. Now let's let's just talk about some planes that you currently own now and uh, across all the different businesses. What is your hangar looking like? 
pretty full, actually. I need, <laughs> I need more hangers. It's either you need um, more hangar space or you need less planes. It's one of the two. Oh, Glenn's always blowing up because I've got too many models in the hangar, taking up room in the, in oh, the really? hangar. But, um, yeah, so I've sort of got aerobatic hangars and I've got warbird hangars. So my, my main hangar at Maitland Airport, is got, it's got my office and it's got um, the Wolf Pits Pro, which is my favourite aeroplane of all time. And it's got uh, the Pits 12. It's got the Pits S111X and it's got uh, the Rebel 300. And it's also got another uh, one design in there at the moment for, for Michael Newby that he brought over from America. And a couple of hangers up further, I've got uh, the two Pits S1s and I've got the I've got one one of the Yak-52s. And then next door to that is the Cessna 185. And then um, down the other end of the, the airfield, in with one of my mates, Beach 18, is um, the... the Lance Air 320. I think that's all for that airfield. And then over at Cessna, we've got the um, LLSA training school plus, so they've got the Sirius. We've got um, the other Yak 52, so we do rides out of Maitland then out of Cessna. Um, we've got the Grumman Avenger. We've got the Wirraway, the T28 Trojan, the Cessna 02 push pull. Um, That'll do, I think, won't it? Yeah, you've got, gee, you've got plenty, plenty of aircraft there. <laughs> so obviously you've got a crew of people doing maintenance on those planes as well? Yeah, Matt Weber from Musk Entire Aircraft Restoration. He does he does pretty much all my maintenance. We do, you know, we do some ourselves, bits and pieces, but Matt's pretty good. I've got Timmy who works full-time for me. He's doing a fair bit of just general stuff, keeping things going and um, all, you know, the things that we can manage. Um, but yeah, there's there's always with that many aeroplanes, there's always heaps to do. That's for sure. Yeah, a lot of these planes that you'd be using them in air shows, would you? A lot of them we do, yeah. And you know, like the the Lance as you as a run around to to pick up. Well, I've got the Kitty Hawk in one of the hangars there at the moment, so you know I've got to go up and like to pick it up from Scone, and then oh, I did a display at the Air Force yesterday, and then um, you know when we drop various machines off at air shows, you know I'll take the take a warbird down and Glenn will come and pick me up. Because a lot of the air shows, we've got to do multiple trips. You know, like if I take a, a Mustang, a Kitty Hawk, a Hurricane, the Wolf Pits, Rebel, Sky Aces, Avenger, Trojan, we're away. It's a fair bit of flying. You, we don't have enough pilots to, you know, to take to take everything. So we just do multiple trips. Yeah, well, I saw you down at the um, the Stoll Comp at Tyre, which was, a, that was an awesome event. You... So you were involved in organising that, weren't you? Yeah, we organised it. We helped them organise it and did all the, the CASA side and the ACE with the pilots and did the briefing. And um, Yeah, it worked out a pretty good... It was a pretty good event down there. It was. It was a great um, event. No, it was really, really yeah. enjoyable. We've got 9 million photos of everybody flying. But uh, And you even had a chance to get out there. You Were you flying your Cessna in the Stoll Comp? Yeah, Cessna 185. Yeah, had a crack at it. Yeah, it was good. Yeah. Bit of fun. Flew yeah. Judy Pays Mustang as well and... Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. Get a display in the Wolf Pits. Yeah, what's your favourite plane to fly? The Wolf Pits. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best thing I ever did was buying that. Best thing for my air, for my air show career, for sure. Really? Now that's um, that's a pretty souped up model, isn't it? That one. Yeah, it's got everything done. Um, it's a great machine, actually, yeah. 
um, you know, really good roll rate, sort of light wing loading for a, for a pits. Um, it's just really well built by Steve Wolf in America. It's the only one flying in the world now. It's the same as Sean Tucker's Oracle Challenger in America, but uh, he's just hanging up in the Smithsonian now. And um, So there was only three ever built, but yeah, mine's the only one flying. And, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to have it. What engine's in that? It's got a IA540 like homing. So it starts life at 260 horsepower. And like on build a custom engine for it. So it's... um. Um, it's 400 horsepower now, Dino that. So yeah, it's got everything done to it. I've got a spare engine, brand new engine. I'm sponsored by Lycon, so they really helped me out. But so I've got, I've got another, I've got a new engine sitting there, ready to go in it. So if anything goes wrong, you know, during the air show season, or I can just pull the engine out, and put another one in. And, um, yeah, that's that's the other thing. It's yeah, so there's a lot of work in keeping up, keeping all the spares for all the machines that so that you can continue to operate. You know. Yeah, no, I imagine it'd be uh, it'd be pretty difficult. Do you do you fly that pits to the air shows or do you do you trailer it? No, I fly it. What's the range on it? Uh, when I put it in the ferry tank, it's got two hundred liters of fuel, burns sixty, uh, sixty-two to sixty-four liters an hour. So I can I can go from Maitland Avalon nonstop. And you'd um no autopilot with that? No, me on the autopilot. Yeah. Yeah, no. The um, actually, Edo when he was flying his pits, he used to, he said to me one day, he said, "Oh, I flew the plane for an hour, and can you believe I did not do one roll? I was just ferrying stuff around. I flew the pits to do it, and I felt, I said, well, what's wrong with you? Not even inverted. He went, nah, straight and level all the way. Now, yeah. let's get back to the aero modeling stuff. Uh, what currently have you got in your hangar as far as RC planes go? Or have you got too many to mention? What are some of the notables? Yeah, there's too many. But, but oh, my trailer at the moment's got uh, L39 Albatross, pretty big one. It's got um, got me F86 Sabre. So the the L39s have got a Jetcat 200. Yep. The Sabre's got a Jetcat 180. I've got, uh, I've got my twin... Um, F14 Tomcat, so that's got two 180s. And there's an extra 300 in that trailer as well at the moment. And Jet's got his um, Viper Jet in there. Yep. Uh, the hangar's got... It's got my big wolf pits. So it's got the, the DLE um, four-cylinder. Uh, 200. 200, yeah. yeah. It goes unreal. Is that, the Hempel? Is that a Hempel model one? Or yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Massive one, yeah. DLE's been unreal too. They're, they're great with the engines. They've been good. And, and Bill Hempel was great. You know, I've gotten to know Bill over the years. So he's been good. I just, just want to get a big cub from him now so that I can use it at the air shows. Oh, yeah, yeah. A friend of mine's got one of those big Hempel cubs. It's massive. Mm. Um, yeah, that's in the next mission. The uh, Is your um, model pits, the Wolf, um, same scheme as your full size? Yeah, identical. Yeah, yeah it's to be expected. I would be disappointed if you said no. <laughs> <laughs> the, but it's it's good to see though that you embrace radio control planes at your air shows. That you know, at the Stoll Comp, we had um, a couple of guys flying and stuff like that. And I think that really, I'm a big believer to grow the hobby. We've got to expose it to people, and wherever we can. And those big air shows just 
absolutely awesome. Is it something that you do make a concerted effort to try to include radio control into the air shows whenever possible? I do it at every air show I possibly can. Um, like So everyone we organise, I always integrate RC. And I mean, I find it difficult to do to do it all myself because, um, and I don't need to because there's plenty of good, really good model flyers out there. So what I try and do is, you know, if we go to, um, like saying tired, you know, none of none of our sort of club guys or my group took their models, but you know, there's Craig Bavery and and some other guys down there that that are good at it. So you just get them to do it. Um, when we go to, you know, obviously our local shows, we'll use Levi and Jeff Sparks and um, you know, because they've got some really nice models and they're good at it. That, that's that's guys from our club that we fly with all the time. But I mean, I know so many people around the country into. That are that are really good model guys. I just when we're in their area, well, we just ask them if they'd like to do it. And some people aren't cut out for flying at full size shows, and and some people are. So, you know, um, we just make it work wherever it is. But I mean, it's all for me. It's all part of promoting aviation in general. Um, you know, I want to promote all facets of aviation. You know, like sure, I'm not necessarily into ultralights and gyrocopters and and so on. I am into obviously full size aerobatics and RC. But I think the best thing for aviation is to promote all facets of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer as well. Like I I sway towards the aerobatics, will definitely sway towards the aerobatics, but, you know, I had a guy say to me, oh, I can't, can't have a go at scale planes. I go, no, I love scale planes. And, you know, I even love, I love some of the weird and wonderful radio control models. Like I've got a radio control paramotor and I absolutely love it. You know, And it's totally opposite to flying mm. aerobatics. But it looks so good in the air, and uh, even some of the little ultralight kind of models that you see around. I, I, I love it all, and and it will support it all. I love gliding as well. But um, yeah, I think just because you might sway towards jets or scale, or whatever, doesn't mean that you've got to look down and frown upon other aspects of the hobby. Like I was even watching uh, some videos on control line flying the other day, and uh, some of the competition and how crazy that is when you've got multiple people flying at the same time. But um. Yeah, I'm on the same page with you when it comes to um, you know promoting the the hobby in aviation. I think it's a it's a good thing to do. That's why I keep on doing what I'm doing. Really, now yeah, I think so. Yeah, for sure. The the COVID situation has put a damper on stuff. But as you covered, you said that there's some air shows coming up. What kind of air shows? Uh, where do you see yourself flying in the new year? Any opportunities out there? Well, the second of January, we're doing an air show at Evans Head. Um, so there's been one there for a long time called the Greatest in Flying, but it's sort of it's just been a flying. It hasn't really been an air show, and it, um, you know, debatably, well, the, the airfield's changed hands now, so um, you know the the direction's different. They want to make it more of a full-on event, so so that's what we're doing. So we're organising. That's actually a driving air show. So with the whole COVID thing, you know, oh, really, you can drive drive your car in. We we basically laid it all out like a big car parking lot and and front row pays more and second row pays less and so on and you can still get out of your car and but you basically you just get your square you know you can you can operate in your square and there'll still be food stalls and and um you know all the all the usual cool stuff at air shows and plenty of displays you know we'll just have all the airplanes parked down the front instead of where we would normally park them but you know hopefully that'll work and um it'll be good good for us to get back into it that'll that'll sort of signal the start of the 21 air show season and then um we got some we're doing uh the the skyworks air show in perth on australia day so we'll be over there 
um, we're going to ship a container over there with some of our airplanes in it so that we're organizing it for them but we're also um, we're also going to fly in it and you know that'll be something that that Perth hasn't seen it's, it's always good to mix it up a bit so um, I'm hoping that we can get maybe get to spend a little bit of time out there I'd like to go out to the model field and I used to fly a little bit at Whiteman Park. I'd like to go out and see a few of the guys and so on while we're over there. Yeah, we got out, well, we got some shows in February as well, some sort of solo events, and we got our big air show at Hunter Valley in uh, 13th and 14th of March. So, you know, hopefully everything's well and truly back on track then. And there's one up the Central Coast in, I think, April. There's Mudgee. There's, um, you know, uh, there's towards the end of the year, there's, um, Wings over Illawarra and Avalon, so it's definitely going to be definitely going to be a big year. And they're telling us that China and South Korea will be back on next year as well. So yeah, hopefully well, we get back on track. I want to touch on that the international side of things as well. How far a field have you gone with the air shows? Uh, I've spent well. We've been doing um, South Korea for probably twelve years. I think it is now, um, and it's been it's been a great experience. South Korea is a nice place and and the South Koreans are quite nice people and, and um, they've got some well-organised events over there. We've been lucky enough to even fly across South Korea several times from to various airfields because normally they, they make it work for us so that it's consecutive weekends, one show at one venue and then so last time we did the Seoul International Air Show, uh, which is just outside of Seoul, and then we did the Sachon International Air Show, so we flew basically across South Korea and you know, South Korea is not not a massive country, so we can actually do it on fuel without having to stop anywhere. So um, it's sort of it's nice to be to to have the opportunity to be able to fly across countries and and have a look at the scenery and um you know it's just just sort of pretty cool, I guess, when you look back on it. Yeah, it is. Um, but it's you know it's nice to be asked to go and fly at those shows and um, yeah, it's it's very well received over there. They don't have any sort of aerobatic pilots that are, that are based in South Korea. So um, they're obviously happy with what we've done. That's why they keep getting us back. You know, we've, we've been good operators and safe. And um, so we've, you know, we've flown under the under a number of different Air Force commanders and they're all been happy with us. So we're happy with that. Um, and China's been, you know, that's been a, a mission for quite a while. We've, you know, we've taken up to... Uh, eight aeroplanes there. We took three containers one year with eight aeroplanes. So that was a that was a, a big project. But you do what you got to do. Yeah, no. When you get those opportunities, sometimes you got to take them. And I always, I've I've been to China a few times and um, model flying, and absolutely love the experience. It's just something about being in another country, doing what you do and what you love. It just it takes on a different dimension, and the whole environment's different. Which uh, which I absolutely love. Actually, I was watching some videos that I shot from China just the other day and reminiscing. Thinking one day I'll I'll get back there once all this COVID thing sorts itself out. Now, as far as your aero modelling, you know, you are a busy guy. And when those the air show season sort of kick off, you're going to be even busier. How often can you get to the field nowadays in a normal year? Well, probably more than normal this particular year because of where we're at. But now normally we try and fly. We try and do a full day, once a month at least. Um, we've been, you know, this year we've been every couple of weeks, which has been really good. Got to, got to get a few of the models, you know, sorted out how I like them. Um, 
sometimes, I mean, yeah, debate it. You know, sometimes you go every weekend, but um, I just, I don't have enough time to go every weekend, to be honest. I just don't, just can't fit it in. But what I, what we've been trying to do instead of sort of going for a couple of hours in the morning, you know, it's a fair ordeal setting the models up and so on. So we've been making a day of it here and there and we get there early and we finish late. And that way then you sort of get to give everything a run and enjoy the day, I suppose. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's. I'm the same as you with all that's going on in life. That making a day out of it, flying a few different planes, it keeps me keeps me going for at least a couple of weeks in between sessions. That I, you know, if you have a good day out, and uh, my mood changes when I've spent a day out flying model airplanes as well. I'm a lot more relaxed, and you know, when I do it. So we've been locked down here in Victoria, so we're all looking forward to get out now. To finish up. Uh, it's a signature move of mine in this podcast and I ask every guest and that is what has been your favorite radio controlled model that you've owned so far? It's a good question. I think I'd have to say my Vigilante jet, which I sold several years ago and a young bloke from the central coast bought it and I saw it fly again maybe a month ago and he gave me a go of it, but it was, it's just been a real nice model. Um, I set. I spent a lot of time setting it up and getting it really, really nice and accurate. And I probably got known a little bit in modelling because of that jet. Um, I'd say that's probably probably my favourite model of all time. I mean, yeah, had some cool models. I mean, their 14s are pretty, pretty nice thing. Um, and I had a MiG 29, which was really nice. And um, I really like my Sabre at the moment. But yeah, I reckon when I look back, I. I'd say probably, probably that vigilante, very cool thing. Well, Paul, really appreciate you spending the time with me today, and great to get to know know your story. And a big thank you for the work that you're doing in aviation, and it does cross to radio control. So I'm sure that uh, we aero modelers are really appreciative. So uh, big thank you, Paul. Now, Iris, thanks for having me, and hopefully together we can promote aviation. Get young people into full size ender models. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a pretty cool thing, pretty cool invention that's, that's happened way back when, and uh, good to good to see it keep on going. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Well, what a guy, Paul Bennett. Big thank you for joining us on the Flat Out RC podcast, and I hope you enjoyed hearing from someone that does fly full size as well. And it, it's got me thinking about that that connection between full size flying and the model flying. And I'm one of those persons that thinks that they're quite, they're two quite different skills. The, the only similarity is that we know what an aileron and a rudder and elevator and, you know, throttle input does. But, you know, when, it's very different when you're sitting in the plane versus watching the plane and flying it. And, uh, you know, my, my brother's an airline pilot for Virgin and uh, he's flown model planes as well. And yeah, he's, he's a good pilot, full size. His model flying is bearable, but it's not, you know, the top echelons of, uh, of model flying really. But he, he's a capable pilot. Um, but yeah, they're two, two, two very different things. But, you know, the, top, the, the amount of full size pilots that, that have flown radio control or vice versa, is quite interesting. Uh, you know, my good mate, um, Ito Segev, who, who we lost earlier in the year, he was, you know, he started life as an, an extremely good radio control aerobatic pilot and 
moved into full-size flying. Uh, Marius Baumgartner, I noticed. Congratulations, Marius. Marius from uh, Canberra down here, our nation's capital. I noticed he just went solo in a uh, full-size plane, so he's made that transition. Uh, Craig Bavery has been on the podcast. He's also made it made that transition as well and uh it's it, it's good to see what you know when what i find about uh when it comes to people that are into aviation and um, pilots in general is that it's you've really got to have an intense passion to, to to go through the processes and also to spend the money because it's not that cheap to to get your pilot's license um especially you know it, it's not too too bad if you want to you know just fly recreationally but if you're looking for a career in flying then it does start to add up uh, for you, but it, it, it those pilots that do go that full size route, I, I've never met a more passionate bunch of guys. You know, even from my own um, family experience and watching my brother from about the age of eighteen flying, it, it's just what he lived for. You know, every waking moment was going down to the flying club and uh, having lessons, or just hanging around with other other guys and girls that were his own age that were also flying and sharing the same experience. That there's this. Uh, Definitely, this big bond, and we we see that throughout aviation. But uh, I I I always wanted to be a pilot. I have a letter when I it was about 19, 1980, I think the letter's dated, and my mum had written a letter to Qantas asking them, you know, what's required to become a pilot because I asked, and I received a typed out. This is pre-computer sort of printing printers printing out stuff. It was typed out on a uh, on a um, typewriter, and I've still got that letter somewhere. And it basically outlined what was required. What interestingly enough is that that requirement that they had back then is very different to the requirements that they have now. You don't need to have nearly as much of the qualifications to become an airline pilot. You still need to be skillful and all that kind of stuff and have the experience in the plane. But the education level has really been thrown out the window as long as you can pass the tests uh, for flying. They assume that you've got enough of a brain. But um, yeah, I wanted to be a pilot and fast forward so many years and the urge to want to fly is not there full size as much. I had a little bit of an inkling when when Edo was around and had visions of, you know, in my 50s going and learning how to fly and Edo teaching me and getting into some recreational, you know, full size. But I sort of, after his demise, I sort of lost the bug at the moment to want to do that. And I did have a go at gliding. If you got, jumped onto the YouTube channel, uh, Flat Out RC YouTube channel, you see that had a crack at uh, a glider and I loved, actually really enjoyed that experience. I felt really safe. It was amazing how how confident I felt and comfortable I felt sitting in that that plane and that single-seater experience with a great view. It was something that I really enjoyed until I started to feel sick. And that was another concern of mine is I'd have to really commit to it to get through the motion sickness phase, which is something that I've grown into. So I'd love to hear whether full-size flying has been on your agenda. If you've made the shift vice versa from full size to RC or RC to full size, well done. I admire you. Uh, I suppose we've got the same similar mindsets. We're tinkerers. We're radio control flyers. And uh, you've got to have that sort of mindset and that commitment to, to fly full size as well. Wanted to learn the ins and outs of everything. Uh, actually, Scott Matthews, Rowdy Matthews from down here is making, he's made the shift from radio control to full size and even building his own plane. Um you should have a look at his YouTube channel. I think it's Scott Matthews is the YouTube name. He's building a cruiser, like a light sport aircraft. Um, so go and take a look at him if, you, if you're if you interested in planes being built. And I also, I've got to mention Mike Pahey. I love Mike Pahey videos as well. And 
the models that he's been building. Again, another guy that has flown radio control as well. So, so hopefully we can speak to more people on the Flat Out RC podcast that have flown full size and radio control. But give it a go. If you're into it, give it a go. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Well, it's that time. Time for me to go. Uh, big episode. Really enjoyed that chat with Paul Bennett. Uh, good guy. Great story to tell. And that's what I love to bring. I'm really into the stories. Uh, next week, I've got another great gentleman, um, an elderly gentleman that he's full of history. You're going to really enjoy the chat that I had with our, our guest next week. So stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe. Uh, on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on, there'll be a subscribe button. Click on it. What that will mean is you'll be notified when the latest episode is out. You'll always have it at your fingertips. And don't forget, whilst you're in the mood for subscribing, jump onto the Flat Out RC YouTube channel. I'm trying to build that up. There's, I've got a list of videos that I want to shoot as soon as I can get back to a flying field, which I still can't. Uh, but uh, it will happen. It's going to happen. So jump on board now um, before it happens. So you'll be uh, on board from when the video stream kicks off again. Don't forget Instagram, Facebook. Just search for Flat Space Out Space RC. Thanks again for joining me here on the Flat Out RC podcast. And again, big thank you to those overseas and, of course, all you Australians. Thanks for joining me.